Hello, and welcome to the first of three Christmas editions of What We Just Watched. I'm Chris. I'm Ian. And I'm Graham. And today, we're going to be watching my choice of festive viewing. So you're going to see an ITV ident, which may give you some clues to the identity of this show. Uh, but I think uh, once we get into the title sequence, you, you will get it straight away. Well, it's the Yorkshire television. Sort of late 80s Yorkshire television, I think. Hey! It's Home to Roost! It is Home to Roost. Is it the Christmas special, Home to Roost, by any chance? <laughs> it is the Christmas special of Home to Roost. And we're seeing shots of um, kind of uh, suburban London, aren't we? Grand Avenue. And a close-up of a pigeon. Did it always start like that, Chris? Forgive my ignorance. It did always start like that. So now we're going to watch the Christmas special of Home to Roost and report back later. So we've just watched the Christmas special of the Yorkshire television sitcom Home to Roost from 1987. First broadcast on... Well, it, well, Ian, can I ask you, what date would you say that was broadcast on? Because you, you can tell a lot about a sitcom status by the slot it gets for its Christmas special. Right, well, I don't think this went out on Christmas Day. You're right. So, I think this has the feel of either a Boxing Day special, mm -hmm. um, or even something that might have been unjustly relegated to the 27th or the 28th of December. You, you're, you're spot on with the 27th. Sunday the 27th of December at 7.15pm up against a feature-length episode of Last of Summer Wine on BBC One. So I, I think 27th of December, that's a decent enough slot. It's, it's, it's in the top half of the league table. I'm surprised it didn't get make it uh, even to Boxing Day, frankly, given <laughs> ITV's track record of Christmas specials. Now, we'll get on to discuss this episode in due course, but I want to start with you, Graham, because as it turns out, um, you never watched Home to Roost at the time. So it's almost like you're a scientific control in my <laughs> 1980s sitcom experiment lab, which is a thing. Um, so, so what are your initial impressions? I mean, I, I know historically what the setup is, what the situation is yeah. vaguely, but watching this episode, and I think, yes, it, it might be the only one I've watched all the way through ever in my life. It's yeah. very hard to think what was the, the big idea that uh, Eric Chappell, the writer, had that he thought, oh, this is you know, brilliant. We're going to do this because... It's got to be there, written. There isn't really a situation, is there? No, not really. I mean, Ian, maybe perhaps you could some, briefly sum up the premise of, of Home to Roost, such as it is. Uh, yes, you're right. It's, it's an intriguing one. I, I have to say, I still think this is one of ITV's best ever sitcoms, despite, <gasps> as, as Graham just said, not having a sit uh, for, for the com to be added to. I mean, the sit, such as it is, is more of something that's happened rather than a, uh, uh, a you know, a, a premise or a location or, mm. or an incident. Um, you have Henry Willows, uh, to give him his full name, it's John Thor's character, who's divorced from his wife and lives by himself 
And the only other um, sort of recurring element is the presence of his son, Matthew, played by Reese Dinsdale. Yes. Remember me? Yes. I'm your son. Who turns up, I think pretty must have turned up in episode one, uh, at um, Henry's house, having um, decided to leave the house uh, of his mother. I haven't seen you in seven years, and one night, without warning, you come home to roost like a bedraggled pigeon. And that's it, really. I think you're right, Graham, in that there isn't actually a real kind of tangible fit. I mean, it's just basically a generation gap sitcom, isn't it? In the duration of the series, I can remember quite a lot of 1980s sitcom teenage parties, which sort of Henry arrives home, you know, you know and there's people having a rave up in, in the sitting room. Uh, but, but you're right, there's, 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 no, there's not a tangible fit. <laughs> If anyone asks, we've just met. I won't be related to a yobbo. So, Graham, what was the other thing you said to me when, when I chose Home to Roost? <laughs> I said that Eric Chappell is your go-to uh, writer for when you're picking shows for us to watch. It's true. In the past, you know, I have chosen The Bounder. I don't... Yeah, it's not by design. I think it's more that he was just so prolific churning out all these sitcoms for ITV. He did Rising Damp, Only When I Laugh, Duty Free. I mean, they literally <laughs> couldn't stop him. That makes it sound like they, they tried that uh, this historically <laughs> on record. <laughs> there were maybe some of the ITV regions trying to opt out, but Yorkshire steamrolling them. <laughs> but just, um, just think about that list, though, that you just quoted. You've got in that list of those four programmes you mentioned, two of them are, I, I would again repeat, are in the hallowed fall of ITV's best ever sitcoms, Rising Down Penome to Roost, I would say, easily qualify for for that top 10. Um, and so I don't think ITV were particularly <laughs> reluctant to stop him when he was churning out such brilliant material. Don't rush me, Henry. I'm not rushing. Who's rushing? It's just, I want the moment to be right. When will the moment be right? <laughs> The Grange, Henry. It's a beautiful hotel. Yes, I know. I've, I've, I've asked for the room with the four-poster. So in this episode, Henry is trying to woo his colleague, Cynthia, who's played by Sherry Hewson, off of Russ Abbott's Madhouse. Yes, it's Russ Abbott's Madhouse! Uh, to come away for Christmas to the Grange Hotel. Now, Graham, is that a suitably Christmassy plot for you? It's not at all. Uh, it's, um, I mean... I have a lot of questions about this for, and a lot of domestic questions. So, for example, home to roost, except Matthew doesn't actually seem to be living with Henry. Henry seems to be living alone. So, um, maybe we're, what, three series in and the format's had some changes, but I was perturbed by that. Um, and I think the whole setup of this episode, I wasn't sure who we're supposed to like and who we're supposed to be rooting for, whether we want... Henry to be able to get his end away with Cynthia. And <laughs> as a side note, I have to say Sherry Houston, uh, she has a, an almost unique career in the 80s in that she could play in inverted commas common, but also in inverted <laughs> commas posh. And in this, because she's called Cynthia, she's yes. the caster as a posh character. But that's extraordinary. How had she managed to do that? Her agent must have been very light on his or her feet to get her both those roles because normally... You're, you know, you're either a Susie Blake or you're a Bella Ember. So to go back to the first of those points, I think it's just for convenience's sake that Matthew is not there when Henry is trying to woo Cynthia. We're told that Matthew has gone away to his mother's for Christmas, but then he comes back. What are you doing here? I've come home. 
I can see that. What I want to know is why. That seems like a sort of bit of architecture in order to give Henry and Cynthia a bit of space in order to kind of do their wooing. So it turns out that Matthew is not spending Christmas with his mother after all. He's come back to Henry and he's brought his sister Julie and their younger brother Frank as well. I have to say, I thought the revelation that the other siblings were also in the house was really, really nicely done. Now, in part, it was a surprise for me because I didn't know there were other siblings in the show. But then this idea that as it goes along, that actually, um, you know, it's not just that Matthew is back. But then uh, we discover that Julie is in the kitchen cutting herself a sandwich. <laughs> that was a curious turn of phrase, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah, and then Frank is upstairs having a poo because he's eaten six <laughs> Mars bars on the way. But I, I thought that was quite classy, the way that that was just seeded in, that actually they were already ensconced in the situation is three times as bad as Henry had already appraised it to be. Well, that's what you want from a Christmas special, isn't it? You want an, an ordinary... Uh, week in week out scenario of a sitcom amplified um, with new threats and pitfalls and risks <laughs> um, and as you just say here it's not simply double but treble I mean it strikes me that Eric Chappell probably had this idea of Henry going away to a hotel for for, for, for a Christmas weekend a dirty weekend Chris <laughs> And was wondering how to develop it over the course of an hour. Mm. And he just thought, well, I'll turn it into a hotel farce. What is it now? I mean, there's a lot of opening and closing of doors in this episode. There's people hiding <laughs> in cupboards. There's misunderstandings. There's wood panelling. There's, there's, a, there's a married cad called Roger. What's he doing here? It's got nothing to do with you. Who is this man, Julie? Ignore him, Roger. He's um, I mean, uh, d d does that work as a, as a Christmas special? I, personally, I think it's fine. I loved it, Chris. Yeah, I thought it was perfect. Um, what more would you want in that sort of post-Christmas dead time, you know, those few days just after Christmas Boxing Day, than to settle back and be treated to a exquisitely written and beautifully performed bedroom farce. Yeah, it takes all those expected boxes. But again, that's what you want to see. You want to see people losing bits of clothing, having suitcases thrown at them, uh, bit, bits of the uh, furniture falling down, <laughs> people looking um, incredibly, with incredibly contorted faces as they're yes. having to make up new lies and double-cross each other. Um, yeah, I thought it uh, was... Perfectly judged by Eric Chappell. Um, and in the same way that, Chris, I was saying that Eric Chappell is your go-to, I think the posh hotel is Eric Chappell's go-to because um, <laughs> it's almost exactly the same setup as the episode of The Bounder that you made us watch. And one could imagine that across the room, Peter Bowles is there as well, running some kind of scheme. Ah, there you are, Mario. Now, um, I like a good table this evening. You know, as he was before. And I, it did make me think, and I have to be candid here and say, I really, really didn't enjoy this episode, but it did make me miss the posh hotel as a sitcom setting. Uh, one thing we do get is, I think, a sitcom variant on the Chekhov's gun rule, where if you see a suit of armour in a posh hotel in the first act, uh, someone will be, some, it will be walking around by the final act. Yeah, but don't, uh, don't forget that it, here there's an added twist in that it's not a, a, an adult inside, it's a child inside. <laughs> <laughs> 
and the I believe the suit of the suit of armor shrinks very very helpfully. Um, <laughs> that was convenient. Yeah, to, when we first see it as an adult sized, and then it fits miraculously onto Frank, who must be about nine or ten years old, um, so that it allows him to then walk into um, Cynthia's bedroom and scare her. Uh, the other thing about the, the about the posh hotel scenario is that Henry decides to give himself uh, the nom de plume of Mr. Barclay, which again <laughs> just kind of adds to this kind of air of the kind of 1950s farce. Mr. Barclay! Mr. Barclay! <laughs> I think he's talking to you, Henry. It gets a few laughs, but there's no. It, it, it do, there doesn't seem to be any reason for it. It just builds on the whole setup, doesn't it? It's almost playing on the established rules of the farce. So the nom de yeah. plume, even though are no longer required, is an element of the farce. And it's a weird mix because that does feel kind of quite forties or fifties. But then yeah. there are lines in this that are incredibly uh, gritty and 80s. There's not much chance of that. You're on the pill. And are you <laughs> yeah. aware of the dangers of casual sex? So there is yeah. a kind of don't die of ignorance kind of uh, <laughs> underscoring all of this. But I suppose we should say for clarity, his kids have shown up for Christmas. So he has um, decided that they're just going to stay in his house and he's going to leave them because he wants to go off for his dirty weekend. Books into a hotel with Cynthia. And then, of course... The kids all show up. And there is another, I thought, very nicely done reveal, which is we've heard that the honeymoon suite that he wants is no longer available due to a complication. And I didn't really think anything more about that. I thought it was maybe setting yeah. up for the fact that when they got to the room, it was going to be twin beds or something. But then it turns out it's because <laughs> his children have booked the honeymoon suite and uh, Frank and Matthew are going to be sharing the bed in there, which seeds in another Chekhov's gun, which is about Frank's bedwetting. He wets the bed. Which I, I, I wasn't sure about that either. It's something I was going to ask you about. I mean, it doesn't feel like something we would get in a sitcom episode today. I mean, I, I don't want to give away any spoilers here, but the episode ends with uh, Henry being urinated on by, by his son. <laughs> it's interesting that, isn't it? Because, you know, it, certainly Ian, you felt, I, I felt that it's kind of, this is a kind of great sort of, you know, kick back in your armchair kind of sitcom. That's kind of a bleak ending for it, isn't well, it? Well, talking of that, uh, it did remind me that the uh, part one, of this also ends on a very downbeat note. Merry Christmas. Is it, Daddy? <laughs> and that's where, that's where we cut to the first um, ad break. It's a very melancholy moment and there's no sort of applause or big uproarious joke to go out on. You kind of wonder at that point, well, I did, where exactly is this going to go? I thought that was quite interesting. I thought maybe that was Eric Chappell taking advantage of the fact that he's got an hour to play with rather than the usual half hour. So he kind of thought, well, I could, I could use a little sort of melancholic moment to underscore the comedy. I was going to ask you, Ian, how you felt this episode succeeded um, in an hour-long thought. I mean, I thought it's notable that perhaps Eric Chappell felt that he needed some extra hands on board, that he wasn't just going to work with Henry and Matthew. So we've got, you know, Henry's love interest and we've got the other two children. Um, do you think it succeeds? I think it does. And I was struck by the clever way in which Eric Chappell had structured this. I made uh, a note of this as I was watching it. And we have three parts. Um, the first part, there are just two scenes. In the second part, this doubles to four scenes. And then rather conveniently, in the third and final part, we have eight scenes. So the, each part has a sequential doubling 
of the number of scenes. That's interesting. And that obviously, as well as sort of um, helping to accelerate the plot, it also accelerates the humour because you've got more situations going on. And so things are moving at a faster velocity towards the end. Now, of course, that might just be probably was completely by chance that that was the case. But it did strike me that that is a... Uh, an interesting device. So, so Graham, as a, as a newcomer to Home to Roost, how do you assess the characters of the three children, Matthew, Julie and Frank? I'm not sure. I'm confused by them. Uh, I mean, Julie, uh, I sort of got the gist that she's probably that sitcom archetype of the young woman who wants to be famous. You haven't appeared on television. Give us on Songs of Praise. But then uh, Eric Chappell gives a dialogue where she refers to her dad as Dumpling. Hello, Dumpling. Which is a very mumsy kind of turn of phrase. It's very strange. There's one other thing which kind of sort of leapt out at me is when she claimed that she could have been in London that night. Uh, Ronnie Scott's. You're not going to Ronnie Scott's. Which yes. certainly is a very odd thing for a kind of girl who's about 16 or 17 to, to, to want to be doing. Well, it's also hung out there, isn't it? As if that is his worst case scenario. Oh, my God. She, you know, she can't go to, to Ronnie Scott's. What's that, Frank? It's a towel rail. Yes, I can see that. What are you doing with it? It came off the wall. <laughs> Never mind. Frank, I found that his yes. character, he just seems like a very legitimately disturbed child who's having a very unhappy life ergo he you know he's he's bedwetting uh, he's uh, exhibiting kind of violent yeah. behavior he's disturbed <laughs> i can't be responsible for frank neither can we he's under a child psychiatrist why because we couldn't get an adult one to take there's it. a reference to him going to a child psychiatrist and that gets a big laugh yeah, it does. I, I just don't know who we're rooting for in this episode uh, at all. I don't know whether we think Henry deserves his time alone. We probably don't think that. But his kids aren't very nice either. They don't seem to want their dad to be happy. Um, they seem to only be going along to the hotel completely out of spite or using his credit card <laughs> as they do so. I'm just not sure who, how, as viewers, we, we know how the situation is going to resolve itself, which is he's not going to get his end away. But I don't know how what we should be hoping is going to happen. I mean, maybe Ian can elucidate me. Are we? Is the whole point that we're just he's getting his comeuppance and, and that's satisfying? I I think so. Yeah, I think what we're rooting for is the plot and and the devices which are going to be thrown in the way of Henry. I think what that's what we we're invested in. Oh, well, that's certainly what I felt I was invested. in. I think also, Graham, during the course of the series, uh, allegiances kind of shift right. within the run of the episodes. So sometimes it might be Matthew who's being unreasonable and you want Henry to win or vice versa. Or sometimes they're both being unreasonable and, you know, we just we're just invested in, you know, how 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 it resolves itself. I want to talk actually about the chemistry between John Thor and Reese Dinsdale as, as the two leads, because I think that's really good. I think their relationship can be quite abrasive at times, uh, because as we've already said, Henry Willows is not exactly a sympathetic character. Is that something you'd agree with, Ian? It won't surprise you to hear that. I, I, I would agree with that. I think that it's a brilliant bit of casting. They're both exceptional comic actors, um, uh, both perhaps... Uh, a bit um, treated unfairly by history. Neither, I don't think, is is particularly well remembered now as being a, a mm. comic actor. Um, but at the time, back in back at this point in the mid to late eighties, 
Um, I think this is the, well. This was one of the biggest programs on ITV, and they were uh, had, uh, they sort of dominated the field. These two, in terms of double acts in in this kind of situation, comedy. Um, I think it's also very refreshing now, as it was then, to not have a son of a leading sitcom star um, depicted in a very sort of caricatured, lazy, one-dimensional <laughs> way. Um, both of these uh, protagonists slash antagonists have flaws and they both mm. have virtues mm. and it's the ever-changing combination of those virtues and flaws which I think sustains uh, this episode as indeed it sustained the whole series. What are you doing here? We booked in. What? They had a couple of cancellations. We've got a double for Frank and me and a single for Julie. Wasn't that lucky? Incredible. <laughs> Wonderful stroke of luck. Who cancelled? Parents whose children had descended on them at Christmas. I think John Thor's got quite a tricky role to, to handle here. I mean, Henry Willows can be genuinely quite unpleasant in this episode. At the start of the episode, he tries to explain away his trip to the hotel by telling his children that Granny Willows is extremely ill. Granny Willows? Yes, yes, bad news. I'm afraid she's not very well. I'm going to the bedside. He's basically lying about the, he the health of his own mother <laughs> to his own children. He's, he's implying that she's on her deathbed. Um, I mean, Graham, how did you feel about that? Again, it's another thing with Tony. It felt a bit odd to me. And now I can hear Ian chuckle when you, you say that. So I think maybe it's more just I, I have a disconnect with the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, he is unlikable, but I did wonder if John Thor is thinking a little of Oliver Hardy. I noticed he does a, a few kind of tie twiddles like Oliver Hardy would when he's in a, mm. a predicament where he's sort of having to think. And there is almost that, oh, you know, kind of grumble that he, he does as well. I wondered if that was the archetype he, he'd been looking at uh, when he was coming up with the character. I mean, his character's also a bit stupid at times. Uh, he sort of tries to pretend that he doesn't have any children to Cynthia because, because he thinks that would put her off him. And, you know, as if that's the sort of lie that you could sustain for any length of time. That's classic, classic sitcom kind of short-termism, isn't it? I, I, could, yes. I could sort of buy that because all he wants to do is basically get to bed with her. And so he is making deals and side deals and trying to set anything up because that is basically all he wants to do. The other thing that, um, that she does... Um, uh, which is very sitcom-y and that Julie does uh, is I like it that occasionally they the, the kind of break into this sort of florid language, this sort of uh, <laughs> uh, where she's weaving scenes, painting pictures. And my favorite bit of that is where, um, you know, she talks about how the moment is right and things for their union. And whereas he just wants to get his leg over, but there's a bit where, uh, and where she thinks he's maybe anxious. Do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to run you a bath and fill it full of aromatic oils and spices. And when she says that phrase, you can hear a woman in the audience go, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I, I, there was one scene right near the start of the episode where Henry buys a saucy black nighty for mm. Cynthia, which is a real staple of, of 1980s <laughs> Christmas sitcoms. And you can literally hear the audience go, ooh. <laughs> I do want to talk about John Thor here because this episode is from 1987, which was also the year that he started playing Inspector Morse. 
And I genuinely love the fact that at the same time that he was playing the cerebral, opera-loving, crossword-solving detective, he was happy to do a knockabout sitcom where he gets a load of bog rolls falling on his head. I, th- I, I think that's to his credit. Wouldn't you agree, Ian? Oh, yeah. This was, uh, this was the start of John Thor's ascendancy into the sort of upper strata of uh, Britain's most loved TV actors, I think. Because up to that point, he'd, uh, I mean, I guess he was best known for the Sweeney and then he did a few bits and bobs in the early 80s and then Home to Roost came along. But it was really Inspector Morse that uh, catapulted him up uh, into the the stratosphere as i say and chris am i right in thinking that uh inspector morse was actually on this christmas as well as home to roost it was on christmas day there you go so perhaps that's why home to roost could not be on christmas day because morse had already <laughs> parked the jaguar in <laughs> the prime time slot i don't know if i got the wrong end of the sticky but the fact that his kids in home to roost give him a record of the mikado the mikado a very good recording. Was that an allusion to Morse's character, do you think, and his love of that kind of music? I'm really not sure. I, th- I think the Mikado and Gilbert and Sullivan seems to be another staple of, of 1980s sitcoms. There's, a, there's an episode of Keep It In The Family, another what we just watched favourite, where, where they're doing the Mikado. I don't, I don't know, what is it about the Mikado that sitcom writers were so attracted to? It's a shorthand for middle-class aspirations yeah. towards upper culture and high culture. There's an episode of Fresh Fields where they do the Mikado as well. It's, 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 it's weird. It's like catnip for sitcom writers. It allows um, audiences who know about um, opera to sort of feel slightly superior to what they're seeing because it, it, it singles out um, the characters as being uh, out of their depth. And they think that, um, yeah, a, a, a bit of a, a, a taste of, of the opera and how the upper set carry on <laughs> is, is uh, it, it equates to a bit of Gilbert and Sullivan. Which I think is meant to then reflect uh, back uh, badly on, on, on the characters themselves. But it's perfect then for John Thor here because it does denote him as someone who has ideas above his station. The other thing about John Thor in this episode is he's got some solid comic chops. I mean, right at the start of the episode, there's a scene where he's trying to open a bottle of champagne. <laughs> and, and he has trouble uh, uncorking the bottle. Uh, you know, perhaps there's a bit of symbolism there. But when he's trying to take the cork off the bottle and he pulls this kind of very strained face, which kind of, again, gets a big laugh. His facial expressions do so much heavy lifting in this episode. <laughs> um, it, 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 um, as much of the humour comes from what he looks like and, and the expressions that he pulls as the things that he says. He is a master of using his face in that way. And indeed... The very final shot of the entire episode is not a punchline. It's not, it's not a zinger. It is, again, the look on his face as he realises yeah. he's being pissed on by his son. <laughs> but that is also a good example of where we don't need... Obviously, we don't need to see it, and heaven knows we wouldn't want to see it. All we need mm. is to be shown 
John Thor's response <laughs> to the very idea of someone pissing on his leg and indeed his son pissing on him. And that is enough to send the audience uh, uh, into hysterics. We should just clarify that his son isn't literally, you know, <laughs> standing up urinating a shower over him. It's that he has to, through circumstances, he has to uh, share a bed with his two sons and then uh, poor Frank wets the bed while he's asleep and we get that realisation. But I think it's a kind of, it's a vanity-free performance from John Thor in that he doesn't, in fact, he seems to be actively steering towards making his character look insubstantial, untrustworthy, yes. a bit of an idiot, but he's not gurning and one doesn't feel that he is, he's trying to pull focus onto what he's doing. I, you know, I worry that people hearing us talking about the faces he pulls might think that he, you know, he is doing a kind of a Larry Grayson or a, you know, uh, but he's not doing that, is yeah, he? Yeah, there's more to it than that. <laughs> I mean, there is a scene uh, just before the very end where uh, Cynthia's thrown him out of their hotel room and he's just kind of left alone in the hotel corridor and he looks very forlorn and very bereft, but in a, in a funny way. And I think that ties into what you just said, Graham. The other thing I really liked towards the end, um, there's a great scene where Henry and Matthew uh, start arguing about the magic roundabout. Boing, 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 Mr. Henry. Wait a minute, he didn't go boing. Didn't he? No, that was Zebedee. And, and who was who in the magic roundabout, uh, which I love because it seems very realistic and, and is actually the sort of thing that family members would argue about at Christmas. I was trying to think of any other um, examples in sitcoms of father-son relationships uh, which we could compare this one with. Um, I suppose you could go right back to Steptoe and Son, but I think the circumstances there are so different, other than the fact that they are obviously having to share accommodation. But I mean, that's so, uh, that's like a world away from home to roost, isn't it? But they're both limiting each other's potential, aren't they? The, the father and son in, in both of those comedies. Um, but yeah, I mean, in home to roost, they're in a situation though where actually ultimately they're all, everyone's quite comfortable and doing okay, whereas in step two and son, they're not. They're in a desperate situation. I mean, I wonder about things like No Place Like Home. <laughs> With, you know, Martin Clunes and... Uh, William Gaunt, maybe there was a sort of a similar kind of parity between father and son there, but but it is, and this is maybe why I need it to be, why I'm having difficulty with the show, I almost need it to be more crude, more vulgar it's, it's a little too detailed and exquisitely put together so that I don't quite get a handle on what Henry and, and Matthew are doing uh, with each other. Well, I think the subtlety though is in its favour in my view anyway, I, I wouldn't want it to be even broader and cruder i think it, it it's perfectly poised on the cusp of being vulgar this episode was from 1987 and one thing that really denoted it was the uh the version the iteration of the yorkshire television chevron that 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 we got at the start i mean would you like to describe that, Graham? Yeah, yeah, I do, because this is from the era where there was a real sudden arms race for ITV companies in 3Dising uh, their existing logos. And this is this is like, a, it's the precursor, I think, to, to um, Terminator 2, where, where the Chevron <laughs> comes out of a rippling bronze pool uh, to yeah. some rather beautiful music. And uh, It's a reorchestration of the classic York's television jingle, isn't it? Yes, it's lost that kind of stentorian vibe that it had and i think that's all for the good which normally was kind of like a a finger wag saying that it's going to be 
how we used to live and it's going to do you some good. <laughs> and Ian, I think kind of you were kind of whistling along with that uh, classic theme tune. Oh, it's, yeah, I mean, it, it's, um, it's wonderful. It's one of the best uh, 1980s sitcom signature tunes. Despite the fact that it's not an original. Well, as I was about to add, yeah. I mean, it's always struck me as slightly unfortunate that it's not uh, an entirely new composition, but instead a, still a, a very good and imaginative arrangement that considers itself from, from um, Oliver. But you do have those wonderful little stings that go in and out of the ad breaks. Oh, and yeah. that perfect, perfect way that the music comes to a sort of um, a uh, unresolved cadence um, just as the action is beginning to <laughs> just to imply that, uh, oh, we're in for some trouble here. I think that ITV sitcoms appropriating these songs for theme tunes was a brilliant idea anyway, isn't it? Because it is the familiarity, it's the f- uh, Fresh Fields effect. So this is a Christmas sitcom episode from a time when pretty much every Christmas sitcom special was a multi-camera affair with a studio audience. I mean, do you miss that era? It's maybe inevitable for me to say that I do miss that era, although I didn't really enjoy the episode per se. I enjoyed watching it with you two um, because of what you were getting out of it. And I think there is this sort of... This, there is something, isn't there, about the studio sitcom which is all-inclusive. And I sort of think that it's maybe starting to return. So, for example, this Christmas, there'll be a Ghosts Christmas special. And that sort of fills a similar slot to the Home to Roost Christmas special in that everyone can watch it and we'll get different things out of it. And there'll be a slightly bawdy element for mums and dads and a silly element for you know, for the, for younger viewers, so I do miss it, but I don't think it's gone. We, I agree. We might think that we go through um, periods when the sitcom is is dead or it's dying and it's fallen out of favour, and then you get, for example, um, Gavin and Stacey coming back last year. Mister, are you asking me to step in? What are you asking me to step into Christmas? Step into Christmas with that Christmas special, which absolutely dominated the ratings and ended up being one of the most watched uh, programs of, of the decade. I know it's not a, a studio uh, sitcom with an, with an audience present, but it ticks an awful lot of the same boxes as Home to Roost. And that just demonstrates, I think, the robustness of this kind of format. You've been listening to What We Just Watched, in which we watched Home to Roost from the 27th of December, 1987. We'll be back tomorrow with Ian's choice of show. Until then, from all of us, it's goodbye. Goodbye.